Father, it's our distinct privilege to be able to share together this morning in the house of the Lord, to fellowship, to pray, to hear the word, to sing, all of those things which are part of our experience as brothers and sisters in Christ. I thank you for each one who's able to be here today and for the health and, and uh, strength you give to us each and every day. And Father, we just invoke your blessing upon us now as we study your word, your word to us individually and corporately. And may your spirit be the one who will interpret the truth to us. Father, we pray that throughout this Sunday school this morning, in each class where many members of our class now are teaching, we pray that you will bless in those classes too and that your spirit will empower the word into the hearts of each and every individual. May we go from here, Lord, today, having sensed that you've spoken to us and that you've instructed us. And I pray that even as we're informed in James, that we're not to just be hearers of the word, but doers also. May we apply what we hear for the sake of your kingdom and for our good in Christ's name. Amen. Genesis chapter 49. I'd like to finish the prophecy concerning Joseph made by Jacob. This prophecy, of course, was made about 3,800 years ago. But the truth that you find in this particular prophecy is just as applicable today as it was to Joseph. So I'd like to read from verse 22 to verse 26, and then we will be focusing on verses 25 and 26. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. Its branches run over a wall. The archers bitterly attacked him and shot at him and harassed him. But his bow remained firm and his arms were agile. From the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. From the God of your father who helps you and by the almighty who blesses you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep beneath that lies beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father have surpassed the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. May they be upon the head of Joseph, on the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers. Joseph's, uh, Jacob's prophetic insight continues as we have focused uh, last Sunday particularly on the bulk of the passage up to verse 25. But in verse 25 of this particular passage, we discover that the faith and the strength of Joseph and his descendants would come from the God of your father. And of course, by direct implication, implication he was talking about the God of Israel. Yahweh, God, had helped Joseph, Jacob, and Joseph, of course. But he'd helped Jacob over these 147 years that he had lived. And Jacob had seen God's help and God's touch upon his sons and upon his grandsons. But, of course, to receive the help of God, he knew, as we must know, that for God's blessing to be upon us, we've got to know God in an intimate way. And certainly this was the desire and the, and the prayer that Jacob had for his sons, not just Joseph, but all of his sons. 
I, I, I would think that our prayer, one of the most important prayers that we would pray, would be the prayer that our children and our grandchildren would know God as we know God. In fact, what more important prayer can you think of than to pray for your children, your grandchildren, your descendants that will come after you, that uh, they would not only know God, but that they would know God even better than, than we know God. Certainly, as we analyze our own lives, we, we see our own imperfections and our own failures. And our desire and our prayer should be that our children, our grandchildren, those that will come, you know, however many generations the Lord will allow, we don't know, that they will know God even better than we have. Because if we possess a relationship with God, then with that relationship we're able to call Him our God, and through that door comes the blessing of God. God, you know, some have said, God helps those who help themselves. Well, that's really not a scriptural statement. Uh, because as we have noted before, really we are in a helpless estate. Especially in that relationship with God, there's really nothing we can do to make ourselves right in God's own eyes. So there's the, we can't help ourselves in that sense. Of course, if we use that phrase to mean we got to get up our, off our backsides and do something, and, and then God can use us, uh, certainly there is, is truth in that. But it's only as we know God personally that the door to His help in our lives is opened. The longer we live, I think, in faith, the better we really understand how dependent we are upon His help. What are we able really to do without God's help? We can say, well, I can get up in the morning, I can take a shower, I can brush my teeth, I can eat breakfast, I can go to work, yeah. But so, I mean, that's important in the sense that we're supposed to do these regular things day after day. But what eternal difference does that make? It, it's what we do in the light of eternity that has any ongoing significance to it. And, and there's nothing you and I can do for eternity that isn't empowered by God. If He's not at work in us, then whatever we do has no lasting value. We read in uh, 1 Samuel 7 last Sunday that God is our Ebenezer, our stone of help. The, the word Eben is stone and Ezer is help. And as you look through the Old Testament, you discover that the word Ezer shows up several times, dozens actually, of times in the Old Testament. And it always seems to refer to the relationship between God and man. It is God who is the helper of man. God is our Ezer, our helper, the one who helps us. And we are in vital need of that help every day. Now sometimes our cry for help is for rather mundane things. Lord, I got a bad cold, help me. Not that that isn't important and not that we shouldn't bring that before the Lord. We should. But we're in dire need of far greater help than that. And that is of a right relationship with God and of maintaining that right relationship and of being God's channel through whom he will accomplish his will and his purpose here in this life. There are several references in the scripture which uh, emphasize the importance of God's help in our lives. In Philippians 4, we won't turn to these, I'll just quickly read a, a part of the scriptures. Uh, 
In Philippians 4.13, we read that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And of course, by definition, I can do nothing if Christ doesn't strengthen me. It's really what it's also saying. In fact, in John 15, Jesus said to his disciples, Without me, you can do nothing. Now, obviously, he didn't mean that I can't get up in the morning or that I can't brush my teeth or that I can't go to work. Oh, I mean, maybe even that. But, but the heathen do that every day. So, so what he's talking about is the things that matter, the things that count, the things for which we're really here. The, the scripture tells us that if we don't provide for our family, we're worse than an infidel. So certainly that we are to do. That's part of the normal routine. And, and as we've looked through the book of Genesis, I've, I've made em, uh, a point of the fact that Genesis does not chronicle hour by hour, day by day, the life of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph. It just moves from one point to the next point of what God is doing in the lives of his people and in the lives of his nation. And so we assume in between that uh, Abraham herded sheep and, and uh, you know, Abraham went to sleep at night and Abraham prepared food and Sarah and, and they raised their children, all these things, this is the natural flow of things, and they're just kind of taken for granted in the sense that they happen. And, and in, in the ultimate sense that by Jesus, everything hangs together, even those things, of course, are dependent upon him. But when, when Jesus says, without me you can do nothing, he's talking about things of eternal importance, things that make a difference in this life, things for which we are really here, and you and I are not here just to wake up every morning and, and to go through the routine of the day. That's not our purpose for being here uh, because everybody in the world, more or less, is, is doing that, even the pagans. Uh, but there's an ultimate purpose in our lives. We're here to be God's incense, to give off a fragrance that the world sees. Or if nothing less, to, to create conviction the world might see. A little bit later on, we're going to be talking about the term Nazarite. And, and, and that has a, a direct uh, uh, influence in the sense of, of creating a sense of consecration that's above the norm. And that's really what we're to have. In Psalm 46, we read, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble, if we ever get in trouble. I think most of us don't have much problem getting ourselves in trouble. Psalm 121, the whole psalm, it's just a short psalm, emphasizes uh, the importance of God's help, the all-importance of God's help. It's not that we can just, you know, sometimes we almost get the idea that I'm going to do this much, and then God's going to give me that last little boost just to kick it over. It's kind of like a pole vaulter, you know? I can get the pole, and I can run down there, and I can get that pole up, and I can get myself most of the way up. But to clear that bar the last few feet, I need God's help. Uh-uh. <laughs> we need God's help for the whole shot, the whole deal. This is a psalm of ascents again, one of the psalms that they sang as they marched up to Jerusalem, uh, to the temple or to the tabernacle for worship. I will lift... 
up my eyes to the mountains, from whence shall my help come? Now, if you've never been to Jerusalem, you might not get the picture, but whether you're coming from the east, like from Jericho, or coming from the west, the, the plains over on the west side, or from through the Shephelah, the, uh, the foothills, as you're coming up to Jerusalem, it appears mountainous. And, and you have uh, the mountain on the east side, uh, the Mount of Olives, and just to the north, uh, east of the city, Mount Scopus, and, and all around there are hills. They're, they're not like Shasta or Lassen, but, but they're hills, and, and they look mountainous. And so as you're coming up, you see this higher land above you. And if you portray that, as these are, are singing this song, you get the picture. I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From whence shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to sleep. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. He is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going in, your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. So, I mean, in this particular passage, you have promises that, that God will protect us, it seems, from the natural of events of the environment, but specifically he will protect us from evil. And, and that God is concerned about our daily doings. You're going out and you're coming in, this time and forever. So, so God is the one we need in all and every circumstance. And this seems to be emphasized over and over again in Scripture. And it's lived out in the lives of so many of the people that we study about in Scripture. Throughout the Psalms, we, we find hymns and pr pr excuse me prayers that constantly underscore how desperately we need God. And we read, it, we read the Psalms of David and some of the others, and it just seems like there's a desperate cry to God. And, and often we'll turn to the Psalms, won't we? Maybe for a time of comfort, sometimes for a time of help. But in, in the Psalms, we've, we discover that we are desperately in need of God's redemption. We're in need of his forgiveness. We're in need of his deliverance. We're in need of his healing, whether it be physical, spiritual, emotional, whatever it might be. We're in need of his protection. We're, we're in need of his empowerment. Another psalm that in a couple of verses kind of emphasizes this is at the end of Psalm 37 in verses 39 and 40 where, where we read the real essence of, of God's hand upon our lives. But the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in time of trouble. And the Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Now, we don't take refuge in him if we don't know him, right? Jacob knew the Lord. And the longer he walked with the Lord, the better he knew him. And he wanted his children to know the Lord and his grandchildren to know the Lord as he did. Because those who know, Lord, know the Lord can take refuge in him. If we don't know him, we won't take refuge in him. We, we don't even know what that means. We're not on speaking terms with God. But as I read that psalm, even again this morning, 
The salvation of the righteous is from Yahweh. It's from the Lord. It's not from our good thoughts and our good feelings. It's not from just being, having a generic understanding of forces of good in this world. Recently, we watched a um, biography of uh, Charles, Prince of Wales. And one of the things that was, you know, he kept stating the fact that, you know, he, th he thinks there's, there's good in every religion. In fact, he's quite interested in Islam. And, you know, being the fact that he's supposed to become the king of England someday, which is also the head of the Anglican Church. He doesn't seem to take that terribly seriously because to him, hey, you know, there's good in everybody and in all religions. And, you know, he says, he keeps saying, but that's the way I see it, you know. And um, I, I just think he has never dealt with the scriptures that make it so clear that our help is from the Lord, Yahweh, not some generic God, not the God whose little flame burns in us all. <laughs> Years ago when I was in the Bay Area and I was doing a particular job, I had time to turn on the radio in the car and, and they, there was a kind of a religious station. Well, there's more than one in the Bay Area, but one of them I was listening to, and they had some good stuff. But one of the persons that uh, came on every once in a while, and I listened to a little bit of it just for the fun of it, it was either, I think it was, it was either Unitarian or Universal Church, whatever it was, but they kept talking about the fact that what you're supposed to do is kind of fan the flame of divinity that's in you already. Just kind of fan that flame so it'll blaze up and you'll be a good person. And I thought, oh, brother. But this is a very acceptable view in, in our society where we're supposed to be pluralistic. And it, it becomes bigoted to think that, you know, in the eyes of most, to think that there's only one name under heaven whereby you must be saved. Well, bigoted or not, that's what the scripture says. What are we supposed to do about that? You know, as soon as we put ourselves in contradistinction to the scripture, we put ourselves in jeopardy. Of course, we live in a, in a, in a day and age when, when absolutes are, are being ruled out. You know, the only absolute is that there are no absolutes, right? And that means that if you are a believer in the scripture as the divinely inspired word of God, which is the ultimate word of truth, then there's something wrong with you because there's good words in the Koran and good words in the Rig Veda and good words in all these other religious books. But there's an arrogance in, in, in mankind that believes that we can know the truth better than the ones who were inspired by the scripture to lay it out before us. But, but that's the way so many are today. It's, it's more genial it's more wise and kind. It's more truly godly to be tolerant of all and to assume that we're all going to get there, maybe by various roads, but we're all going to get there because we really all have the same ultimate desire. In Genesis 49:25, as we read on in that verse, we discover who the God is who helps us and what that help includes. We read... And by the Almighty who blesses you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breasts, and blessings of the womb. Now certainly, ultimately, there's a contrast here. 
or a, a statement of the outside parameters. Blessings from the heaven above and from the deep beneath. You know, Paul talks about the length, the width, the breadth, the height of, of God's love and all that he has. And in effect, that it's immeasurable. And that there's nothing that can separate us from that because it's all encompassing. But within the blessing of God, we discover that the whole concept is kind of mind-stretching. That the Almighty God blesses us. That Almighty God, maker of heaven and earth, who is cognizant of all four, 5.67 billion people who live on this planet today, that that God knows you individually and God blesses you individually. Now, if that's not mind-stretching, I don't know what is. I mean, not even the best supercomputers in the world can keep that kind of contact, you know, around the world. Now, the, the passage here is using the name El Shaddai, God Almighty. Within the divine name, El Shaddai, is not only the concept of an omnipotent God, a God in whom all power resides, but, but it's the concept of the one who knows our every need, meets our every need, and even grants our right desires. No good thing will he withhold from those who love him and who serve him and who believe in him. He is the source of every good and perfect gift. Furthermore, it's not only that he can help us, and you know, most of us, I don't think, have any problem with the fact that God can help us. I know God can do it. But it's also that God will help us. He will help us. And it's not that he does so reluctantly. Oh, I guess. You know, it's kind of like how we sometimes give in to our kids, right? They bug us and bug us and bug us. And you say, oh, all right. It, it's not an enthusiastic all right. It's a reluctant all right. And because we function sometimes that way as parents, we, we, we you know, project that on God as if God is up there saying, well, you're bugging me. I guess. I guess it's all right. But that's not the way God functions. God blesses us because he wants to bless us. He wants to bless us more even than we can conceive of wanting to be blessed, if that's possible for us to comprehend. He wants to abundantly bless us. You know, press down and running over is the kind of blessing that, that God wants to give. Now, we all, almost always translate that instantly into dollar signs or something like that. You know, oh, press down, running over, you know, dollars everywhere. <laughs> we, we, we're not totally freed from the Enlightenment deistic thought that um, all of us are created equal and have the, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, I think I mentioned this once before. When John Locke, the, the English philosopher in the 17th century, first pronounced that trinity, he said, life, liberty, and property. It was Thomas Jefferson who then equated property with happiness and said, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so that got stuck, you know, into our Declaration of Independence. And so happiness and property were equated 
right there. Now, John uh, Thomas Jefferson was, was the epitome of the Enlightenment in America. Uh, you know, a man who, whose mind was, I mean, he was a scholar, you know, founder of the University of Virginia, you know, architect, designer, scientist, note taker, uh, categorizing all the plants and animals in Virginia and all this kind of stuff. And he was a deist of the first order. And, you know, he had a real hard time understanding that God loved him personally because he didn't believe you could have a personal relationship with God at all because God was just the great force. You know, the ancient Greek prime mover up there who just kind of set it all in motion and we're just supposed to live according to the laws which the Enlightenment thinkers were trying to understand. And once you could live in harmony with the universe, then everything would be a-okay. So, you know, if you want to pray, that's okay, but flowery speech is about all it's going to amount to. Not going to change anything. But that's not the God of the Bible. And, and God isn't up there hoping we're going to just follow the laws that he set in motion. He wants to reach down and touch our lives individually and bless us in an abundant way. And not just in dollars. And maybe not even in dollars. He, he wants to bless us in our spirits. In that sense of, of who we are. In that sense of purpose in our lives. In that sense that we are accepted in the Beloved in the sense that we're redeemed. Because really that's the ultimate peace. Jesus said, I will give you peace, shalom, in the ultimate of shalom, which is that deep inner sense that all is well between me and my God. And if I die tomorrow or even today, it will be blessed. It will be bliss. You know, and most people, unless they're just fooling themselves, don't have that sense at all especially those who don't know the God who has made the promise. Now, God instructed Moses later on to instruct Aaron and his sons to pronounce a specific blessing on the nation of Israel. And it's a blessing we know pretty well. I'd like for us just to turn to it quickly in Numbers chapter 6, verse 22. Because it kind of embodies the real essence of God's blessing. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons saying, Thus you shall bless the sons of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you shalom peace. So they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel, and then I will bless them. We just have this curse of living in a trite world, where all of these kinds of things are made into little formulas. I mean, this is a powerful statement here. I mean, these are the words of the Lord. He said, you tell Aaron, this is what I want him to say. And then God gave him the very words to say. And, and, and you notice the summation of it all comes together in the last word, shalom. The real <laughs> ultimate focus of God's blessing is peace in our hearts. There's not going to be peace in the world. There never has been peace in the world since the fall. Peace, peace, and there is no peace. 
So the only place peace can be is in our heart. Tranquility in the sense, in, in the midst of a storm. And as we have that peace, it not only gives to us that, uh, you know, that is not only a great blessing to us individually, but then it becomes a powerful witness to the world. How in the world can you be so calm in the midst of a great crisis? <laughs> to be blessed of God is really nothing to take for granted. And to invoke God's blessing upon others is nothing to look at lightly either. However, if we do not have a right relationship with God to begin with, we cannot receive his blessing. And we cannot be a channel of blessing to others either. There's no way we can bless another person if we are not maintaining a right relationship with God. In Malachi, we read these words. <laughs> and to me, the, the last little phrase is so insightful. If you do not listen... And if you do not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. What? <laughs> I will curse your blessings. Uh, you know, I, when we bless someone else, it becomes a curse. And, and even what we consider to be a blessing is cursed. If we do not give honor to his name, praise God from whom all blessings flow, we sing in the doxology. Whether we're blessed or are a blessing to others depends directly upon our obedience to God. You know, it just keeps coming down to that last final point of obedience. And that, of course, is where the rub comes in or much, most of us most of the time. In Deuteronomy, we read these words, All these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. And then there's a conditional statement. If you will obey the Lord your God. These blessings will come upon you, and it says overtake you. It's kind of like you're running along, and all of a sudden a flood of blessings comes on top of you. If you obey but later in that same chapter, which happens to be the 28th chapter, uh, he says, But it shall come about, if you will not obey the Lord your God, to observe and do all his commandments, that all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. He uses the same wording and concept here. God's blessings just sweep over us like a flood, but the curse will too, if we're disobedient. And so it really comes down to that. And certainly this is in Jacob's thinking as this prophecy is being given to Joseph. Joseph has been an obedient man. But what about his sons and his grandsons and other descendants down the line? What about Ephraim and Manasseh and, and the sons of Ephraim and Manasseh and the grandsons and the descendants down to the numerous generations? Will they be obedient? Well, it won't be for lack of of having the Word of God instructing them concerning this. I think that to be a recipient of God's blessing should produce in us a sense of awe. That the mighty God of the universe, who is so holy, should bless us who are so unworthy. The longer we walk with the Lord and the more we study His Word, the more we have this sense of our own unworthiness, I believe. 
that we cannot possibly stand in the presence of God in ourselves and in our own strength. Just poof, we're gone. Like the moth that flies into the flame. But in the righteousness of Christ, God blesses us. In addition, his blessing should create within us at least a glimmer of some of the attributes of God. I mean, God has been compassionate to us. Should we not then in turn be compassionate to others? God has shown mercy to us. Should we not in then in turn be merciful upon others? There's this tension within the Christian faith. This tension that many face with the, with the tension of, of wanting to uphold God's standards and, and to point out sin and, and try to eradicate sin within the body. And yet on the other side, be a merciful person. Now, we don't want to be, I mean, sometimes we, we, uh, we mix up mercy and tolerance. They're different things. You know, to tolerate sin, the scripture does not condone. But to be merciful upon the sinner, that's part of scripture. As God is merciful, we need to be merciful. As he's blessed us, these attributes of his should begin to flow through our lives. Certainly not perfectly as it does through God. The attribute of generosity should be there too. A lot of Christians have a real big problem with this one. The attitude, the attribute of generosity. Because we live in an inquisitive society. You know, if you don't look out for number one, who will? And so we, we need to try to hang on to everything. But it's interesting that uh, God commanded the Israelites that when they freed a slave, they weren't just to say, you're free, now go, as happened at the end of the Civil War. Of course, there was no willing freeing of the slaves for the most part. But the scripture tells us in Deuteronomy, you, when you free your slave, you shall give to him as the Lord has blessed you. And that's really a hard concept to get a hold of, but really that's the New Testament concept of giving. As the Lord has blessed you, so you give. So you and I be generous. And of course, we're familiar with the stories of the Rockefellers and the Vanderbilts and the others who built these mammoth fortunes. And sure, they, they earned, earned a little credit in the world by founding this foundation which gives away money and building this museum and this hospital. But were they really generous persons in their heart? Or were they really greedy persons in their hearts? The Lord wants us to be willing to share as he has blessed us. In the latter half of that verse in Genesis 49:25, uh, Jacob kind of categorizes the blessings of God. He says, Bless the blessing of heaven above. The blessing of heaven above. And I think this implies at least two types of blessings. Spiritual blessings. In Ephesians we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. Every spiritual blessing. As you read down through the list, you know, of grace and faith and mercy and love and all these wonderful attributes of God, he's blessed us with them all. Through Christ Jesus. 
Because in Christ was focused every attribute of God because Christ was the divine being. Forgiveness of sin, love, hope, peace. These are just some of the spiritual blessings that come down to us from heaven above. And they are the most essential, the most critical, the most necessary for our lives. Even though, I, I don't know, it seems that many Christians struggle with this. And, and probably all of us who are honest with ourselves struggle with this too. We say, thank you God, I'm really grateful for, for the love and the mercy and the grace. But, you know, over here on the other side, <laughs> would it be such a great crime if I were rich? <laughs> you know. <laughs> So we, we, kind of, <laughs> we kind of emphasize the, the physical blessings because from above come the physical blessings too. You know, in, in James 1.17 we read, Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variableness or shadow of turning. And I think sometimes we have a hard time just filtering through and understanding that when he's talking about every good and perfect gift, he's, he's not excluding health and wealth and houses and all these kinds of things. But his primary focus is on love and grace and mercy and peace and hope. The things that stand for all eternity. But, but our flesh is always there at us saying, yeah, those are good, but you know, it's good to have good health and strength so you can spend the weekend on the slopes and so that you can, uh, you know, have a cruise in the Caribbean and, you know, so that you can buy that other car and have that other house and, you know, whatever else. And, and so we, we have a tendency to think that we're not really being blessed by God if we're living kind of on the edge of it all the time and wondering how we're going to pay that next bill. We, we kind of think maybe we've done bad things and God's not blessing us. But that's not true. Spiritual blessings are paramount. Physical blessings are implied also. And, and you know, it's interesting, the sunshine and the rain. And Dr. Brown was saying this morning, it's so nice to see the sun shining through these windows for a change. And it really is, you know. And to look at the glorious mountains with the snow on there. And, and certainly these are blessings from above. And then he goes on to say, blessings of the deep. Blessings of the deep. This seems to refer to wells and springs from which arose life in an agricultural and a pastoral world. Springs in the desert. In a desert land such as Egypt, water was looked upon as the greatest physical blessing of all. As Herodotus said, Egypt is the gift of the Nile. No Nile, no Egypt. I mean, after all, look at what surrounds Egypt. You know, it's, it's the eastern extremity of the Sahara Desert, the world's largest desiccated area. And if it weren't for that river flowing through there, there would be no Egypt. So the, the blessing of, of water, the very essence of survival. The deep, of course, in Scripture often refers to the oceans. And I don't think this is a scientific statement at all, but you and I, I, I trust, are aware of the fact that all the water that does bless us comes out of the oceans. You know, it evaporates out and comes as snow and rain and, and goes down into the ground and, and forms the rivers and the springs and the wells. And, and, and so the blessing of the deep is in that sense also. The blessing of the breast and of the womb, this clearly, of course, implies that fruitfulness is the gift of the Lord. The bountiful reproduction of mankind, of, of the animals that were being raised in those days, and of the crops, 
was dependent upon the mercy of God. No mercy, and these things failed. Jacob understood this very well because he had seen a large family come forth. And he had become, rather than as his grandfather had been the father of, well, more than one child, actually it all came down to about eight, but really for a long time just the two. And uh, then his father, the uh, you know, father of only two sons, and, but now he with all these 12 sons and, and who knows how many daughters altogether. In the next verse 26 of Genesis 49, Jacob testifies to the greatness of God's blessing. He says that God has blessed me in even greater ways than he blessed my ancestors. And of course, he was thinking specifically of Abraham and Isaac. And he's not boasting here. He's not inferring, I was so much better than they, so God blessed me more than he blessed Abraham and Isaac. No, he was being an honest man, and he was saying, I don't know why it is, but God has blessed me even be above my father and my grandfather, and certainly they were more godly men than I. And yet God has, has blessed him. I, I think Jacob was a very humble man by this time. And he you know, was right aware of his many failures through his life and of God's blessing anyway. And he looked upon his own unworthiness, and it stood in such stark contrast with the God he had come to know. And so he felt that he was blessed more abundantly than his ancestors, and his prayer was, and so God blessed Joseph more than you've even blessed me, and through him bless Ephraim and Manasseh and the descendants that will come. How much should God bless? How much did God bless up to the limit, to the very summits of the everlasting hills? And I don't think when he said everlasting hills, he was looking around at the cliffs that kind of hover over Egypt. Of course, he wasn't even in that part of Egypt. He was in the delta where it's just wide open land. Uh, he was thinking of home. He was thinking of Hebron, which is up at over 3,000 feet, and of the hills around there. Or certainly he was thinking of the Dome of Gilead, where he'd, at the base of which he had met God at Peniel. Or he was thinking of snowy Mount Hermon, which he had passed many times. Now, the Hebrew word which is translated everlasting here can also mean old or ancient. But, you know... We all know the hills are never, not everlasting. But compared to our lives, they seem that way. I mean, probably most of us won't see Mount Shasta up here shrink much during our lifetime. We probably won't see Shasta Bali here kind of wither down, you know, as, as we live out our lives. So they seem everlasting, and so it made a great uh, uh, comparison. And then he invoked the blessing upon the head of, of Joseph, who was the one, he said, who was distinguished, meaning consecrated, devoted, or separated to God among his brothers. The term here is Nazir, N-A-Z-I-R, and the base for the word Nazirite. A Nazirite was a separated one. This, of course, hadn't been instituted yet. It would be instituted later on during the time of uh, Moses. But a Nazirite was set aside for a special service to God. And, and God would later make a specific provision for that. And uh, that's in the same chapter of Numbers, if you're still there, uh, 6, where we read again, verse 1, again, Moses, uh, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of the Nazarite, to dedicate himself to the Lord, he shall abstain from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar, whether made from the wine, from wine or strong drink. Neither shall he drink any grape juice, nor eat the flesh or dried grapes. 
All the days of his separation he shall not eat anything that is produced by the grapevine, from the seeds even to the skin. All the days of his vow of separation no razor shall pass over his head. He shall be holy until the days are fulfilled for which he has been which he separated himself to the Lord. He shall let the locks of his hair on his head grow long. All the days of his separation to the Lord he shall not go near a dead person. He shall not make himself unclean for his father or for his mother or his brother or his sister Then, when they die, because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation he is holy to the Lord. Sounds like a hard, harsh thing, but we have to understand that the only people at that time who had any kind of formal separation were the Levites. And so this was a way for those who belonged to other tribes to have a consecration to God. And the whole nation was consecrated to God. The whole nation had certain rules they had to live by, even dietary laws. And part of those laws, of course, were hygienic, but part of that law was for the purpose of separation that they might appear to be different from the surrounding people. Come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. And, and for a Nazarite to then be further consecrated required narrower restrictions. And, and it's not here, in, this passage isn't saying that somehow the grape is a, a verboten item because it was one of the good things, one of the things that Israel could partake of. But it was to, to separate oneself from something that was common in their existence to make their consecration more obvious <clears throat> and, and, and to make it, themselves aware constantly of this vow they made to the Lord. And so the hair became an outer sign of the fact that they were consecrated as a Nazarite, and, and they were not even to touch a dead person, not even it was their own mother. I mean, Levites could do that. Of course, they had to get, go through the cleansing process afterwards, but they could do that. But uh, Nazarite was not to do it at all. And again, it wasn't because God was uh, you know, being mean here. He wanted their separation to be so distinct, so they remember that they have made this vow to the Lord. Again, the things in the Old Testament that seem so weird to us, you know, all this blood that flowed in the sacrifices and, and all these prohibitions, we say, ah, we couldn't live like that. Now we could. Uh, the, the reason they're there is so that we understand, so that they would understand the seriousness of their relationship to God. Now we live in a day and age when people aren't serious. You know, God, you know. They just think, well, God's up there and he's kind of like an old grandfather in his rocking chair looking down saying, well, you shouldn't have done that, but it's okay. A kind of a situation, you know, God winks his eye at everybody's sin, no matter how gross. Well, you know, not at Adolf Hitler maybe, but everybody else. And, and, and that's, a, you know, a totally erroneous view. And the blood flowed in the Old Testament. Sure, it was gross and it was, it, it was offensive. But that was so that they would understand that sin is a serious matter. I mean, it's an eternal matter. To stand in sin before God was eternal damnation. Of course, today many of the churches throw hell out the window, so you don't have to worry about that anymore. But the Bible hasn't thrown it out, and neither has God. And, and therefore, we have to understand that uh, it, it's a serious matter to fall into the hands of the living God, because our God is a consuming fire, we're told. And, and so these things are there for, for that very reason. Now, it's too late for, for me to uh, take look look at the one of the most outstanding examples of a Nazarite who was not all that uh, committed to his vow, maybe, but 
certainly the one of the most well-known Nazarites of Scripture, uh, Samson. But maybe we'll do that as we do before we do Benjamin next week. But uh, anyway, uh, this is a, an important concept in Scripture.